Section 8 of Salt Mines and Castles by Thomas Carr Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. The Rothschild Jewels, the Goering Collection. We had our share of troubles during those last ten days at Alt Aussie. They began that first day of my investiture as head of the team. Lamont and I were sorting pictures in the room at the mine entrance. It was early in the afternoon, and we were about to start loading our third truck. I had just said to Lamont that I thought the morning's convoy had probably passed Salzburg when a jeep pulled up to the door. The driver called out to us that one of our trucks had broken down at Guisern. That was an hour's drive from the mine. Why hadn't we been notified earlier, I asked. He didn't know. Perhaps there hadn't been anybody around to bring back word. Maybe the driver had thought he could repair the truck. We got hold of Steve, and the three of us started out for Goisern in the messenger's jeep. We'd have to transfer the load, so an empty truck followed us. We were thankful that the breakdown hadn't happened while the convoy was going over the Pushkin Pass. It would have been a tough job to shift the pictures from one truck to another on that steep and dangerous part of the road. It was bad enough as it was, because it looked as though we'd have rain. One of the trucks had a lot of very large pictures. We hoped that it wasn't the one that had broken down. It was a little after three when we reached Guisern. The truck had been parked by the headquarters of a small detachment of troops on the edge of town. There were several houses nearby, but plenty of room for us to maneuver the empty truck alongside. The Negro driver of the stranded truck said that it had thrown a rod and would have to be taken to ordnance for repairs. That meant that the vehicle would be laid up for two or three weeks. We'd have to see about a replacement. The main thing was to get on with the unloading before it began to rain, and it was the truck with the big pictures. With the two trucks lined up alongside and only a few inches apart, we could hoist the pictures over the sideboards. In this way, each row of paintings was kept in the same order. Lamont and Steve boarded the empty truck, while one of the gnomes from the mine and I started unlashing the first stack of loaded pictures. Before long, a crowd of women and children had collected to watch this unusual operation. There were excited oohs and ahs as we began to transfer one masterpiece after another, two large Van Dykes, a Veronese, a pair of colossal decorative canvases by Hubert Robert, a Rubens, and so on. The spectators were quiet and well-behaved, whispering among themselves. They didn't pester us with questions. We rather enjoyed having an audience. We finished the job in an hour and a half. It wasn't too soon, for as we were securing the tarpaulin at the rear of the newly loaded truck, it began to pour. We parked the truck, arranged for an overnight guard, then climbed into our jeep and started back to the mine. In a few minutes, the rain turned to hail. The stones were so large that we were afraid they'd break the windshield of the jeep. We pulled over to the side of the road and waited for the storm to let up. While we waited, the gnome told us that sometimes the hailstones were large enough to kill sheep grazing in the high meadows.
Only the summer before, he had lost two of his own lambs during one of the heavy summer storms. He swore that the stones were the size of tennis balls. We were thoroughly soaked and half frozen when we got back to the mine, but we had won our race with the weather, and the truck would proceed to Munich with the next convoy. During the next three days, we were beset by a series of minor difficulties. Two of the trucks broke down on the way up to the mine to be loaded. It took half a day to get replacements, so the convoy was delayed. One night, the guard on duty at the mine entrance developed an unwarranted interest in art and poked around among the pictures, which Lamont and I had carefully stacked, according to size, for loading the next morning. No harm was done, but it caused a delay. He was under strict orders to let no one into the temporary storage room and was not to go in there himself. It was partly our fault. We shouldn't have trusted him with the key. The captain of the guard was notified and appropriate disciplinary action taken. The gnomes developed a tendency to prolong their regular rest periods beyond a point Steve considered reasonable, and we had to come to an understanding about that. On the whole, however, the work went fairly well. Even the great chambers of the Kammergrafen were beginning to thin out. They were far from empty, but we had cleared them of a substantial part of the external loot, that is, the loot which had come from countries outside Germany. There were still quantities of things taken from Austrian collections, but they had not been our primary concern. The time had come to make a final check, to make sure that we had not overlooked anything important in the category of external loot. Together with Sieber, we started this last inspection. We checked off the pictures first. Our work there had been pretty thorough. After that, the sculpture. This also seemed to be well weeded out, and the furniture, too. Zeber was ahead of us with his flashlight. The light fell on two cartons standing in a dark corner behind a group of Renaissance bronzes. I asked what was in them. Zeber shrugged his shoulders. They had never been opened. He had forgotten that they were there. We dragged them out and looked for an identifying label. Sieber recalled that one of the former custodians at the mine had said the things inside were sehr wertvoll, very valuable, but he knew nothing more. We carried the boxes to a table where there was better light. They were the same size, square, and about two feet high. They were not heavy. We pried open the lid of one of them with great care, it might be Roman glass, and that stuff breaks almost when you look at it. But it wasn't Roman glass. Inside was a row of small cardboard boxes. I lifted the lid and removed a layer of cotton. On the cotton beneath lay a magnificent golden pendant studded with rubies, emeralds, and pearls. The central motif, a mermaid exquisitely modeled and wrought in iridescent enamel, proclaimed the piece the work of an Italian goldsmith of the Renaissance. The surrounding framework of intricate scrolls, shells, and columns blazed with jewels. There were 40 boxes filled with jewels, necklaces, pendants, and brooches, all of equal splendor. The collection was worth a fortune. 
Each piece bore a minute tag on which appeared an identifying letter and number. These were Rothschild jewels. We had stumbled on them quite by accident. Lamont and I agreed that they should be taken to Munich without delay. There they could be stored in a vault. Furthermore, we decided to deliver them ourselves. It wouldn't do to risk such precious objects with the regular convoy. We admonished Siebert to say nothing about our find. In the meantime, we would keep the two boxes under lock and key in our room. That night, we told Steve we had a special surprise for him. After barring the door against unexpected visitors, we emptied the boxes onto one of the beds. We told him not to look until we were ready. We arranged each piece with the greatest care, straightening out the lengths of the necklaces, adjusting the great Baroque pearls of the pendants, balancing one piece with another, until the whole glittering collection was spread out on the white counterpane. Then we signaled to Steve to turn around. God Almighty, where did you find those? he asked. While we were telling him how we had happened on to the two cartons that afternoon, he kept shaking his head, and when we had finished, said solemnly, They're beyond my apprehension. The expression stuck, and from that time on, we invoked it whenever we were confronted with an unexpected problem. Early the following morning, we stowed the jewels in the back seat of our command car and set out for Munich. Halfway to Salzburg, we encountered Captain Posey, headed in the opposite direction. He was surprised to see us, and still more surprised when we told him what we had in the car. He was on his way to the mine. There were some things he wanted to tell us about our next job at Burstesgaden, but if we would come to his office the next day, that would be time enough. He wasn't going to stay at the mine more than a couple of hours. He would be back in Munich before midnight. He said there was one thing we could do when we reached Salzburg. Call on the property control officer and arrange for clearance on the removal of the Vienna Museum pictures to the Munich depot. This was an important part of the plan which George had outlined, so we said that we'd see what we could do. We had some difficulty finding the right office. There were two military government detachments in Salzburg, one for the city and the other for the region. They were on opposite sides of the river. We caught Lieutenant Colonel Homer K. Heller, the property control officer, as he was leaving for lunch. I explained that it was our intention to call for the paintings and tapestries on our way to Berchtesgaden the following week. He said he could not authorize the removal, that we would have to see Colonel W.B. Featherstone at the headquarters across the river. If the colonel gave his okay, it would be all right with him. He didn't think that the colonel would take kindly to the idea. This was a surprise. Who would have the temerity to question the authority of Third Army? Lamont was amused. He told me I could have the pleasure of tackling Colonel Featherstone alone. It was after two o'clock before the colonel was free. Nothing doing on the Vienna pictures. That would require an okay from Verona. Why Verona, I asked. General Clark's headquarters was the answer. Didn't I know that the 5th Army was taking over the area very shortly? Then the colonel, in accents tinged with sarcasm, expressed his satisfaction at finally meeting one of the monuments officers of the 3rd Army.
he had heard such a lot about them and the wide territory they had covered. He had been told that a group of them was working at the Alt-Assi mine, but I was the first one he had laid eyes on. I gathered that he was mildly nettled by Third Army in general, and by me in particular. As a matter of fact, the colonel's attitude about the Vienna pictures was logical. Why move them out of Austria? If, as he supposed, they were to be returned to Vienna eventually, why take them all the way to Munich? I had no answer to that and took refuge in the old I-only-work-here excuse. He found it rather droll that the Navy should be mixed up in this high-class van and storage business. I had, too, once, but the novelty had worn off. I rejoined Lamont and the jewels. I wondered what Captain Posey would have to say to all this. We reached Munich too late in the afternoon to see Craig at the depot, so we took the jewels with us to his quarters. I had not seen him since my departure for Alt-Assi some weeks before. In the interim, there had been a tightening up on billeting facilities. As a result, he and Ham Coulter were now sharing a single apartment. I was the only one adversely affected by this arrangement. Craig no longer had a spare couch for chance guests. When Lamont and I walked in, we found them talking with a newly arrived naval lieutenant. He was Lane Faison, who had been around Harvard in my day. In recent years, he had been teaching at Williams and was at present in OSS. After we had been there a little while, Lamont asked very casually, Would you boys care to see the Rothschild jewels? Ham wanted to know what the hell he was talking about. Well, we have two boxes filled with them here in the hall, Lamont said. For a second time, we displayed the treasures. Craig's enthusiasm was tempered with concern for their safety. He was relieved when we said we had come purposely to put them in one of the steel vaults at the depot. We went with him to the Konigsplatz forthwith and stowed them safely for the night. Lamont and I continued on our way to Third Army Headquarters. Lincoln was working late. When we walked in, he looked up from his typewriter and said, Hello, in a flat voice. Lincoln was in one of his uncommunicative moods. We left him alone and busied ourselves with letters from home, which we found on Posey's desk. Lincoln went on with his typing. Presently, he stopped and said, George's orders came through. He's gone to the Pacific. It ought to be interesting work, said Lamont. Oh, you knew about his orders? asked Lincoln. No, said Lamont. That broke the mood. We had a lively session for the next hour. Lincoln was always a reservoir of information, a lot of it in the realm of rumor, but all of it fascinating. That evening, he was unusually full of news. He had a perfect audience in Lamont and me because we had been completely out of touch with things while at the mine. After exhausting his stock of fact and fiction, he produced his latest box of food from home. They were brandied peaches, tins of lobster and caviar, several kinds of cheese, dried fruits, and crackers. It was a combination you'd never risk at home if you were in your right mind. You do very well for yourself, I said when he had the refreshments spread out on his desk. My wife knows the enlisted men's motto, nothing is too good for our boys and nothing is what they get. 
We finished the box, and Lincoln showed us an article he had written on Nazi sculpture. We were reading it when Captain Posey came in. He asked if we had stopped in Salzburg to see Colonel Heller. I told him what had happened there. If he was annoyed, he gave no sign of it. He rummaged in his desk and brought out a list of instructions for us in connection with the operation at Birchtis Garden. He suggested that we stop there on the way back to Alt Aussie. It wouldn't be very much out of our way. He gave us the names of the officers we should see about billeting and so on. It would be well to have all these things settled in advance. Then he gave us some special orders for Lieutenant Schrady, who was to be transferred to Heidelberg now that the evacuation of the mine was ending. Captain Posey said that I was to take over the Mercedes-Benz. It had been obtained originally for the evacuation team. We were to take it with us to Burstesgaden. I could make good use of the car, transportation facilities being what they were, but I didn't relish the prospect of taking it from Schrady. He had spent money of his own fixing it up and looked on it as his personal property. I told Captain Posey how I felt. He said he had a letter for me which would take care of the matter. It was a letter directing me to deliver Lieutenant Trady's orders and to appropriate the car. When we saw Faison at the depot the next morning, he asked if he might drive back with us. He was joining Plout and Rousseau at House 71 to work with them on the investigation of Nazi art looting. I said we'd be glad to have him. The three of us started off after early lunch. We were looking forward to the Birchtesgaden detour. None of us had been there during the Nazi regime, and I, for one, was curious to see what changes had taken place in the picturesque resort town since I had last seen it 15 years before. We took the Salzburg Autobahn past Jimsey, almost to Traunstein, and then turned off to the southwest. This was the finest secondary road I ever traveled. It led into the mountains, and the scenery was worthy of Switzerland. Thanks to perfectly banked turns, we made the 90-mile run in two hours. The little town was as peaceful and quiet as I remembered it. In fact, it was so quiet that Lamont and I had difficulty locating an army outfit to give us directions. We learned that the 44th AAA Brigade had just moved in and that the last remnants of the famous 101st Airborne Division were pulling out. There was no love lost between the two, as we found out later. Consequently, when I asked an officer of the AAA Brigade where I could find Major Anderson of the 101st Airborne, he informed me curtly that that outfit was no longer at Birchtesgaden. Then I asked if he knew where the Goering collection was. He didn't seem to know what I was talking about, so I rephrased my question, inquiring about the captured pictures which had been on exhibition a short time ago. Yes, he knew vaguely that there had been some kind of a show. He thought it had been over in Unterstein, not in Birchtesgaden. Well, where was Unterstein? He said it was about four kilometers to the south, on the road to the Koenigsee. His directions weren't too explicit, but we eventually found the little back road which landed us in Unterstein ten minutes later. In a clearing on the left side of the road stood the building we were looking for. 
It was a low, rambling structure of whitewashed stucco in the familiar Bavarian farmhouse style. It had been a rest house for the Luftwaffe. The center section, three stories high, had a gabled roof with widely overhanging eaves. On either side were long wings two stories high, similarly roofed. The casement windows were shuttered throughout. We found Major Harry Anderson on the entrance steps. He was a husky fellow with red hair and a shy, boyish manner. He was not altogether surprised to see us because George had stopped by on his last trip to Munich and told him we'd be arriving before long. How soon could we start to work on the collection? In four or five days' time, we thought. Could he make some preliminary arrangements for us? We would need billets for three officers, that is, the two of us and Lieutenant Kovalyak. No, there would be four. We had forgotten to include the Negro lieutenant in charge of the truck drivers. Then there would be twenty drivers. Could we say definitely what day we'd arrive? Lamont and I made some rapid calculations. It was a Tuesday. How about Friday evening? That was fine. The sooner the better as far as the major was concerned. He was slated to pull out the minute the job was done, so we couldn't start too soon to suit him. He asked if we'd care to take a preliminary look around, but we declined. It was getting late, and we still had a hard three-hour drive ahead of us. As we turned to go, Jim Plout and Ted Rousseau came out of the building. They had been expecting Faison, but were surprised to find him with us. Wouldn't we all have dinner with them that night at House 71? They had come over from Bad Assi that afternoon, bringing Huffer with them. They had been quizzing him about certain pictures in the collection, and he had wanted to refresh his memory by having a look at them. They pointed to a stocky German dressed in gray tweeds who stood a little distance away talking with a tall, angular woman. We recognized him as the man we had seen pacing the garden at House 71 weeks before, the evening Lamont and I first reported to George at the mine. That was his wife, they said. Would we mind taking Hoffer back with us? If we could manage that, they'd take Faison with them. There were some urgent matters they'd like to talk over with him in connection with their work. We agreed, and Ted brought Hoffer to the car. As we left, he called out, Widerschon, Liebermutti, and kept waving and throwing kisses to his tall wife. I was struck by the stoical expression on her face. She watched us go, but made no effort to return his salutations. I wondered if she gave a damn. Hoffer was a loquacious passenger. All the way to Bad Assi, he kept up a line of incessant chatter, half in English, half in German, on all sorts of subjects. He gesticulated constantly with both hands, notwithstanding the fact that one of them was heavily bandaged. He explained that he had scalded it. The bandage had been smeared with evil-smelling ointment, which had soaked through. As he gestured, the air was filled with a disagreeable odor of medication. Did we know Salzburg? Ah, such a lovely city, so musical. Did we know Stokowski? He knew him very well. Then you'll probably be interested to know that he has just married one of the Vanderbilt heiresses, a girl of 19. I said, 
but I must be joking. Was it really so? I was getting bored with this chatterbox when he suddenly began to talk about Goering and his pictures. We asked him the obvious question. What did Goering really like when it came to paintings? Well, he was fond of Cranach. Yes, we knew that. And Rubens. He had greatly admired Rubens and many of the Dutch masters of the 17th century. But according to Hoffer, it was he who had directed the Reich Marshal's taste. Then, to my surprise, he mentioned Vermeer. Did we know about the Vermeer which Goering had bought? After that, he went into a lengthy account of the purchase, leading up to it with an involved story of the secrecy surrounding the transaction, which had many confusing details. When we pulled up before House 71, Hoffer was still going strong. Lamont and I were worn out. Schrady departed the following morning in compliance with the orders I had brought him. He left the Mercedes-Benz behind. If I could have foreseen the trouble that car was going to cause us, nothing could have tempted me to add it to our equipment. Even then, Lamont eyed it with suspicion but we were both talked out of our misgivings by Steve, who rubbed his hands with satisfaction at the prospect of the éclat it would lend our future operations. With Schrady's going, we fell heir to his duties. During our last three days at the mine, they complicated our lives considerably. There were records to be put in order, reports to be finished, pay accounts to be adjusted, ration books to be extended for the skeleton crew which would remain at the mine. In addition, I had to see Colonel David about the reduction and reorganization of the guard and make provision for different billeting and messing facilities. In the midst of these preparations, Ted Rousseau telephoned us from House 71. Were we planning to take Cress, the photographer, with us to Bertstesgaden? We certainly were. Steve would sooner have parted with his right eye. Well, they wanted to interrogate him before we left. How long would they need him? A few days. I suggested they start right away. We'd be needing him, too. Steve was wild when he heard about it. I agreed that it was a nuisance, but that we'd have to oblige. The OSS boys came for crest that afternoon. Steve watched them balefully as they drove off down the mountain. Then he resumed the work he had been doing on his big stair truck. This was a cumbersome vehicle which he and Cress had been putting in order. It had belonged originally to the Einsatzstaub Rosenberg and was part of Cress's photographic unit. He and Steve were refitting it to serve our purposes in a similar capacity. It was a fine idea, but so far they hadn't been able to get it in running order. Steve had had it painted. When he had nothing better to do, he tinkered with the dead motor. Next to Cress, the truck was his most prized possession. I returned to Schrady's old office, where I found Lamont in conversation with Dr. Herman Michel. Michel was a shadowy figure who had been working at the mine with Zebra and Eder throughout our stay. When Posey and Lincoln Kirsten had arrived at Alt Ossie in May, he had identified himself as one of the ringleaders of the Austrian resistance movement and vociferously claimed the credit of saving the mine. Since then, he had been working in the mine office. 
Captain Posey had given him permission to make a routine check of the books and archives stored there. He was such a talkative fellow that we kept out of his way as much as possible, and we didn't like his habit of praising himself at the expense of others. He was forever running to Plout and Rousseau at House 71 with written and oral reports, warning them to beware of this or that man in the mine organization. Lamont looked decidedly harassed when I walked in. Michelle was protesting our demands for a complete set of the records. We were to leave them in Colonel Davitt's care when we closed the mine. Michelle had taken the opportunity to say a few unpleasant things about Sieber. We finally made it clear to him that there would be no nonsense about the records, and also that what we did about Sieber was our business. We finally packed him off, still protesting and shaking his head. The afternoon before our departure, Lamont and I had to go over to St. Agatha. The little village lay in the valley on the other side of the Pushton Pass. We were to verify the report that a small but important group of paintings was stored in an old inn there. A fine Hubert-Robert landscape given to Hitler by Mussolini was said to be among them. We went first to the Burgermeister, who had the key. He drove with us to the inn. It was an attractive Gasthaus, built in the early 18th century. The walls were frescoed, and a wrought iron sign hung over the doorway. When we arrived, the proprietress was washing clothes in the arched passageway through the center of the building. She took us to a large corner room on the second floor. There were some 50 pictures all of them enormous and unframed. The Burgermeister helped us shift the unwieldy canvases about so that we could properly examine them. They were, for the most part, of indifferent quality, sentimental landscapes by obscure German painters of the 19th century. But we did find five that were fine. The Mammoth Landscape with Classical Ruins by Hubert Robert, the 18th century French master, this was the one Mussolini had given the Fuhrer. An excellent panel by Pinini, it too a landscape, a Van Dyck portrait, a large figure composition by Jan Sieberecht, the 17th century Flemish painter, and a painting by Ribera, the 17th century Spanish artist. We set them aside and said we'd return for them in a few days. We had hoped to leave for Birchtesgaden by mid-morning the next day, but we didn't get off until three in the afternoon. At the last minute, I received word from Colonel Davitt's office that the Mercedes-Benz was to be left at the mine. I said that since we had no escort vehicle, it was an indispensable part of our convoy. That being the case, the Colonel's adjutant said we could take the car, but on condition that we return it within 24 hours. I said I'd see what I could do about that. Steve fumed while I talked. When I hung up the receiver, he said, Don't be a damn fool. Once the car's out of his area, the colonel hasn't got a thing to say about it. Let's get going. Sieber and Eder, together with a dozen of the gnomes, were waiting in front of the mine building when we came down the stairs. Lamont was already in the car. I gave final instructions to the captain of the guard, said goodbyes all around, and got in the car myself. Everybody smiled and waved as we drove off. 
The evacuation had been a success. Ninety truckloads of paintings, sculpture, and furniture had been removed from the mine during the past five weeks. Although it was by no means empty, the most important treasures had been taken out. Third Army was withdrawing from the area. From now on, the mine would be the responsibility of General Clark's forces. End of Section 8